You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we thank you for your word, and it is to that that we come at this time, and we know that we can know nothing from it unless your spirit illuminates it to our hearts, and so we pray that you would be present to do that even now. We thank you that through your word you speak to us, and we trust that the spirit of God is going to be active and alive and active right now in our hearts to illuminate that word to us. We thank you for this, and we trust in that, and pray that this time would be a blessing to us as we learn from you and from your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three cardinal virtues that are typically associated with Christianity. Do you know what they are, the three cardinal virtues? Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Typically, through most of church history, those three cardinal virtues have been associated with three of the most prominent of the apostles. Faith, hope, and love. And then, of course, you have an apostle of faith, an apostle of hope, and an apostle of love. Who would you say has typically been identified as the apostle of faith? That would be Paul. If you were going to, if you were going to defend justification by faith or you were going to quote something about faith, you would probably quote Romans 5.1 that we have been justified by His grace through faith and have peace with, with God through Jesus Christ. Or you would quote Ephesians 2.8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So Paul has typically been called sort of the apostle of faith. Who would you say has been identified as the apostle of love? John. Good. Yeah. Why is that? Because you read First John and you get these tremendous expositions of loving the brethren and loving God and loving each other in books by John. He's called the apostle whom Jesus loved. And there's a lot about love in John, the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. First John talks about love a lot. So John is typically called the apostle of love. Well, that leaves who as the apostle of Hope. Peter. And you know why, Peter? Because when you read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the epistle of 1 Peter is really an exposition of what it means to place our hope in God and to hope in God in the midst of suffering and tribulation and trials and all of that. So you have Paul, who is the apostle of faith, John, who is the apostle of love, Peter, who is the apostle of hope, But can you really divide up those three virtues? They really have to go together, don't they? Can you honestly say that a man has faith, active, saving faith, if he does not hope in God and he does not look forward to heaven and he does not live for the next life and he does not love his brethren? Can you say that his faith is real? Or can a man have hope and say, I, my hope is in God, my hope is in heaven, but I don't have faith and I don't really demonstrate love. Or can a man really have genuine, selfless, God-like, agape love without saving faith and without a hope that is fixed on eternity? The three have to go together, don't they? And we see that the three go together in Paul. Even though Paul's called the apostle of faith, and rightly so, because really Paul defended faith against all of the attacks from all of the false teachers 
that came from every angle in the early church. So his writings predominantly emphasized the role of faith in the Christian life. But he wasn't silent about love, was he? Who wrote the great love chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? That was Paul, right? Great exposition of love. I found the word love comes up in Paul's epistles 114 times. So he's talked a lot about love, didn't he? And he wasn't silent when it came to the subject of hope either. When Paul talked about hope, in fact, he mentions it 46 times in his epistles, the subject of hope. We fix our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers, 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. In fact, Paul wasn't silent about hope. The subject of hope was the one thing that was at the center of his ministry, the center of his message, the center of everything he did as an apostle. It was hope that was at the center of all of that, and it was hope that he was on trial for in Acts chapter 26. You need to have your Bibles open to the book of Acts chapter 26 because you're going to see how central the idea of a hope was in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul didn't say, I'm on trial today for being the apostle of faith. All of the Jews understood faith was necessary. Faith was required. He didn't say, I'm on trial today because I have talked about love. It wasn't that at all. Paul said what? I am on trial today for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. It was the hope. It was the subject of hope that it was at the center of his trials, the center of the controversy, the center of his life, the center of his message. And so it would do us well to understand what this hope was about, what the hope was, and why it was so controversial, and why it got Paul in trouble. So when Paul says, I am on trial today for the hope, he has something specific in mind. Now we looked last week at sort of his Jewish upbringing in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 26. Look at those verses again. So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. That's all about Paul's Jewish upbringing. He's telling you, I was raised in a Jewish city by Jewish parents, around a Jewish family, by the Jewish temple, and the Jewish culture, trained in the Jewish law by a Jewish rabbi. I lived like a Jewish man as a Jewish Pharisee. You get it? He is a Jew. That's what he wants Agrippa to know. Right out the start. I am an expert in these things, just as you are, Agrippa, because I am a Jew. But then we read verse 6, and it sort of seems like Paul has jumped the train tracks, so to speak, and head off on a rabbit trail that really has nothing to do with what he said up to that point. Verse 6. And now I'm standing on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So he begins by saying, I'm, I'm a Jewish man raised in the Jewish law in a Jewish city. I'm very Jewish. And then he says, and I'm on trial today for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Does it seem to you at the outset that the apostle has kind of changed positions or changed gears dramatically here and taken up a whole new subject? Talking about his Jewishness, and then he jumps off and he's talking about this hope. You know, friends, he hasn't changed gears at all. In verses 4 and 5, he's talking about his Jewish upbringing, his Jewish person. In verses 6, 7, and 8, he's talking about his Jewish theology. Because every Jew sitting there in Agrippa and everybody who heard those words and everybody who would read these words would understand exactly what a Jew meant when he said, I am on trial for the hope. There was something that the Jews meant by the hope. And we want to find out this morning what it is. But what I want you to notice, friends, is this. Paul doesn't say, I'm on trial today for sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. Remember, we covered this a couple weeks ago. What does he say? I'm on trial today for the hope. All of those other bogus accusations have slid off the table. 
Nobody's even talking about the sedition, the sacrilege, and the sectarianism that they had accused him of back in chapter 21 and continued to beat that drum all the way through chapter 25. By this point in the discussion, all of those have gone away. Now it really boils down and everybody can see this is a theological issue. Now I want to give you an illustration, a modern day illustration. I want you to imagine that you are called for jury duty. Some of you hate the idea of being called for jury duty. I'm one of those people that I, I'm, I look forward to being called for jury duty. I've lived in this county for 31 years and I've been registered to vote since the day I turned 18 and I've been called for jury duty once and I didn't even get to serve and it's always disappointed me. Now I want you to imagine that you're called for jury duty. And you go down to the courthouse and you go through all, you're there with all of those people in the, the courtroom and you get called up and you're asked questions by the prosecution, you're asked questions by the defense and is there anything that disqualifies you from hearing cases about uh, child molestation or pornography or drug use or drunken driving and you answer no to all of those and so you are approved by both the prosecution and the defense as a, as a good jury candidate for a trial. And so then you're placed on the jury and you come in the first day of court and you make your way over to where the jury sits in all those chairs and you sit down there and the prosecution brings in the accused and they parade the accused down in the courtroom up to the front there and, and he takes his seat and the, uh, and the defense attorney is there and the prosecution is there and the person who is on trial is standing there and the judge opens the court and they read the charges against the accused, the criminal. And the charges are, he believes in a triune God, that God exists in three persons eternally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are all consubstantial, con-eternal, and con-equal, co-equal with each other. That's the accusations. And the accusations are being brought by the prosecution. The prosecution is somebody who doesn't believe in the Trinity, maybe a Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, Christian scientist, Unitarian, modalist, whatever. Fill in the blank with your own mind. Somebody who doesn't believe in the Trinity. And they read off the accusation, and the accusation against the accused is that they believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. What is the first thing that goes through your mind when you hear that? You say to yourself, what in the world is this doing in our American judicial system? This doesn't belong here. We have no means, we have no method, we have no authority to determine issues of orthodoxy between religious people. This man is on trial for something that's not even related to our American judicial system at all. And they have convened a jury and they have gone through all of this trouble to accuse him and bring accusations against him on a religious issue that doesn't even belong in the courts. Friends, that is exactly the situation that Paul is in. He is on trial for the hope. And every ruler, whether it's Felix or Festus or Agrippa or the people in Jerusalem, had to have been saying to themselves, this issue does not belong in our judicial system. It's out of place. Why? Because the issue is a theological one, not a criminal one. And so Paul is standing before Agrippa. He is giving his defense. And the issue is the hope. I want you to notice four things about this hope. Four things about the hope. First of all, beginning in verse 6, read the verse with me again. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The first thing I want you to notice about the hope is that it is a, an historic hope. It was the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Now, I want to define what a hope is, and then I want to take a look at what this particular hope was. So what is a hope? When Paul says, I'm on trial for the hope, when the Bible uses the term hope, it doesn't mean a wish. It doesn't mean a hope in the sense that we use the term hope as in I hope my team is winning right now and I can't be there and I wish I were to watch it and I hope my team is doing good or I hope it doesn't snow or it does snow this afternoon or I hope something. It's not in, in terms of being a wish. 
When the Bible uses the term hope, it means a confident expectation. A confident expectation. Do you understand the difference between a confident expectation and a wish? I may wish that my team is winning, but do I have any confident expectation that they're able to do so? No, I don't. I might hope that they do in the wish sense, but I have no hope that they will in the confident expectation sense. Do you understand the difference between those two things? When the Bible uses the term hope and when Paul uses the term hope, he's talking about a confident expectation. Fix your hope on the living God. That's confident expectation. Peter says we have been born again to a living hope. Therefore, fix your minds on the hope that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a confident expectation. When John says in 1 John, I think it's chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, that we will see, when we see Christ, we will be made just like Him. And therefore, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself. That is the confident expectation. And we can have confidence and we can expect it because God has promised us. That's what turns a hope from a wish into a confident expectation, the fact that God has promised it to be such. Now, if God had promised me that my team was going to win this morning while I'm at church, then I would have every confident expectation that they would do so. And it wouldn't be a hope in the sense of a wish. It would be a hope in the sense of a confident expectation. Because God has promised something, I can have absolute certainty that He will carry it through and that He will do it. It's a confident expectation. That's a hope. Now here's the question. What is the hope that Paul is talking about? When he says, I am on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, what promise is it that God made to his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Daniel, Isaiah, and all the rest of the the fathers? What is that promise that God made? What is the promise that Paul has in mind? Not what hope do you have. Don't take whatever hope you have in your mind and cram it into the text. The question is, What hope does Paul have in mind when he talks about the Jewish hope? The hope that God made to the fathers, that they confidently expected to come to pass, that the twelve tribes served God night and day in hopes of attaining. What is that Jewish hope? It's only one thing. The Messiah. And everything that is wrapped up with the Messiah. Now I don't have time, and we don't have time, to go back into the Old Testament and go through all of the things in the Old Testament that sort of build up to this hope and trace this. So I'm going to give you this morning the Cliff's Notes version of what the Old Testament Jewish hope was. First of all, it was this. They had a hope, they had a confident expectation that God was going to send a Messiah. All the Jews expected that. From the fall in the Garden of Eden, they were looking forward to God sending some kind of a Redeemer. Abraham understood that. Daniel understood that. David understood that. All the Old Testament saints were expecting that God would send His Messiah. And all of them expected it in their own lifetime and looked forward to it and anticipated it and expected it and longed for that hope to be fulfilled in their own day. Most of them died having never seen that promise. So it had that element, that God was going to send a Messiah. The second element to the Jewish hope was that God, through the Messiah, was going to deal with the sin issue entirely and finally. That God would not impute their sins to them, but would instead count righteousness to them. And they didn't understand exactly how, but they were, God was going to in some way deal with the sin issue once and for all. This kind of dovetails with what we covered in Sunday school, adult Sunday school class today, because we were kicking the subject around. The third element to that hope was not only that God would send His Messiah and that the Messiah would deal with the sin issue, but the third element to that hope was that the Messiah would set up a kingdom of righteousness. That's what the prophets predicted. That is what Abraham expected. That is what Isaac expected. 
That is what Jacob expected. That is what David expected. Daniel expected. All the Old Testament prophets, all the Old Testament righteous men expected that when God sent His Messiah to come and to deal with sin, that He would establish and set up a kingdom of righteousness. Now, when the angel, we're getting into sort of the Christmas season here, so let me bring the um, birth narrative of the Lord Jesus into this. When the angel appeared to Mary, the angel said to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And listen to this. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Has that happened? That hasn't happened, has it? Jesus Christ does not sit on the throne of David, his father. And he has not established a kingdom that goes on forever and ever. But that was what the angel told Mary would be true of the baby that was to be born from her as a virgin. In Luke chapter 1, Mary said after the visitation of the angel, Mary certainly understood exactly what the angel was saying because this is what she says. He has given help to Israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Did you catch what she said? This she understood. This baby that I am to bear, this is the fulfillment of everything that God spoke to Abraham and to his descendants forever, to our fathers. The angel said, the one that is to be born in you is the one in whom all of the hope of the nation will be fulfilled. And Mary said, I understand that this one that is to be born of me will be the one in whom all of the hope of the nation is fulfilled. And the angel said, he will sit on the throne of his father David and he will rule forever. Forever. That hasn't happened, has it? It seems to me that we must be looking forward to something that has not yet been fulfilled. Psalm 89, speaking of the Davidic covenant, or the covenant that God made with David, the psalmist writes, speaking, God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Psalm 89, verses 35 and 36. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon. And the witness in the sky is faithful. Did you catch that? What did God promise to David? I will build up your seed. I will establish your throne from generation to generation. I will bring somebody who will sit on your throne and rule forever and ever. That was the promise to David. Did the disciples understand this? Sure they did. Acts chapter 1, and we could go back there, but we're not going to. Remember on the on the mount outside of Jerusalem, all the disciples are gathered there, and Jesus is there with him, and he's preparing to depart. And what do the disciples say to him? The disciples say, Lord, is it now that you restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time, Lord? This is what we've expected. And in their mind, they're thinking to themselves, we know he's the Messiah. He's risen from the dead. Now would be a perfect time to establish the kingdom that the prophets and the whole nation of Israel has looked forward to. Is it now, Lord, that you're going to restore the kingdom to the nation of Israel? Is now the time? You're risen from the dead. Death no longer has dominion over you. All power and authority has been given to you. Now would be a great time to just set up the kingdom and usher in all of the promises and all of the hope that our whole nation has longed for. Is now the time, Lord? And what did Jesus say to them? He said, no, 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 you don't understand the nature of the kingdom. All those prophecies are to be fulfilled spiritually. There's no such thing as a kingdom. There's nothing to look forward to. No, no, you have to understand all of that in its spiritual sense. 
Jesus didn't say that, did he? He didn't rebuke him at all. He said, no, the only thing you're wrong about is the timing. It's not for you to know the time. The timing of it is none of your business. He didn't correct them and say, there's going to be no kingdom. They said, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And he said, no, it's not going to be now. Just wait. It's not your business to know the timing, but in the meantime, you preach the gospel here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I'll take care of the timing. You take care of the task I've given to you, and I've sent the Holy Spirit to help you accomplish that task. There most certainly will be a kingdom. That is the Jewish hope. When Paul says, I am on trial for the hope, every Jew there understood exactly what he was saying. It was the Messiah. That God would send the Messiah, that the Messiah would deal with the sin problem, and that the Messiah would establish a kingdom of righteousness. The only thing they did not understand was that there would be a period of time between him dealing with sin and setting up a kingdom of righteousness. That's the only thing they didn't understand. Everything else they had right about the kingdom. Acts chapter 1 is a a real powerful passage for those who deny that God ever intends to set up a kingdom here on earth. Friends, he most certainly does. I will establish the throne of your father David and you will sit on it and you will rule forever and ever and ever. And that's not a heavenly throne. It's not a heavenly kingdom. It's not a spiritual thing. It is a literal, physical reign of Jesus Christ, the son of David here on earth. That's the Jewish hope. But there was something else tied up with that Jewish hope that had to happen beforehand. And here's the fourth element of it. Not only that there would be a Messiah, that he would deal with the sin issue and establish the kingdom of righteousness, but fourth, that prior to the establishment of the kingdom, there would be a resurrection. A resurrection of all of the Old Testament saints and all of the righteous who had gone before, who had looked forward to the fulfillment of that promise and had hoped for it and set their hope on that promise of God that he would do that. But they never received the fulfillment of that promise. They looked forward to it, but in their lifetime it never happened. The Jews believed, based on the Old Testament, like Daniel 12, verse 2, which speaks of the dead rising, and Isaiah 26, verse 19, that speaks of the the dead rising, that this resurrection would take place right at the beginning of the establishment of that kingdom. Why did they believe that? Well, how is it that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Daniel, Isaiah, and all of these men, having died and never received the benefits of that hope, how is it that they would be able to experience what was promised to them? The only way that was possible is if they rose again and entered into the kingdom having been resurrected. That's what the Old Testament Jews believed. That's what they hoped for. That's what they expected. And then you get to Revelation chapter 20, and what do you find? Just prior to a 1,000-year reign of Christ, there is a resurrection of the righteous. And they enter into the kingdom, and they rule and reign with Christ for a 1,000 years. That was the Jewish hope. It was a historic hope. And the Jews had fixed their sight on that Messiah and that resurrection that would come. What I want you to notice, friends, is that it's a historic hope. It's an old hope. It's an age-old hope. Paul didn't say, hey, I know this doctrine of the resurrection, the kingdom. It's some Johnny-come-lately thing. I just made it up or we fabricated it as Christians. Paul says, no, this is the hope of the promise that God made to our fathers. What was that promise? I'll send the Messiah. He will deal with the sin issue. He will establish the kingdom of righteousness and he will raise the dead. And Jesus confirmed that that is exactly what he would do in John chapter 5. There's an interesting discussion between Jesus and Martha in John chapter 11. Maybe you didn't catch this. When Lazarus died and Jesus went down to Bethany where Lazarus was and Mary and Martha and he was approaching the village and Martha ran out to him and she was grieved and Jesus tried to comfort her and said, your brother will rise again. What did he mean? He meant, I'm going to go in, I'm going to raise him to, to life. And Martha misunderstood what Jesus was saying. She said, Lord, I know that my brother will rise 
in the resurrection at the last day. What did the Jews expect? That there would be a resurrection in the last day prior to the establishment of the Messianic kingdom and that Lazarus and all of the other saints, the righteous, would enjoy that resurrection and the blessings of it and the blessings of the millennial kingdom. And that's when Jesus said, no, you understand, I am the resurrection and the life and he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He wasn't correcting or misunderstanding about the resurrection. He was just simply saying, I'm the one that's going to do it. I'm the one who's going to speak and all men will come up out of their graves and will stand before me, some to everlasting damnation and some to everlasting life. It's a historic hope, friends. It goes back thousands of years, even before Christ. This confident expectation that we have that God will send his Messiah, that he will deal with sin, that he will establish a kingdom of righteousness and that he will raise the dead. That's the Jewish hope. So when Paul says, I am on trial today for the hope, what does he mean? I am on trial today for the messianic hope because I believe what the Old Testament prophets said about the Messiah. It's a historic hope. And the same is true for us. Our, our doctrine of the resurrection, our doctrine of the kingdom of Jesus Christ doesn't go back 100 years, doesn't go back 200 years, doesn't go back to the Reformation. It goes back, friends, all the way prior to the coming of Christ, all the way into the Old Testament to Abraham. It's a historic hope that we have. Second, it's not only an historic hope, it's a national hope. And look what Paul says next. Verse 7, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. This is the promise. This is the hope that all 12 of our tribes hope to attain to as they serve God night and day. Now notice that Paul is not saying that attaining this hope can be acquired through serving God. He's just saying that all 12 of our tribes hope to attain to this by serving God. It's a national hope. It was all of Israel. It's all 12 tribes, our whole nation, all of the Jews. And Agrippa would be able to see this. He'd be able to listen to Paul and understand this is not something that he's made up. This is something that goes back hundreds, thousands of years to the time of Abraham. This is the expectation of the whole nation of Israel, that God was going to give them this hope. And the whole nation looked forward to it. All 12 tribes. I want to give you something on an aside, and there's no extra, no extra charge for this one. But listen. There's a, a, a teaching circulating today called British Israelism. Have you heard of this? Have you heard of the Christian identity movement? Have you heard of the white supremacist movement? Oh, yeah, all of a sudden, every, yeah, every hand goes up. We've heard of the white. I live next door to one, you might be saying. Um, the Christian identity, British Israelism, white supremacy movement is based upon this idea that back 500 years before Christ, when the Assyrians invaded the northern ten tribes of Israel, because you had the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes, that when the Assyrians came in and they invaded the ten northern tribes, that in that invasion and in that deportation and that Assyrian captivity, that the northern ten tribes got lost. And that they migrated north into Europe and eventually over into Britain. And then from Britain to America. And ta-da, the white, blonde-headed, blue-eyed people of today are the true Jews. And all of the Jews that we think of as Jews left in the nation of Israel are bastardized, mongrel, half-breed, interbred Jews, and they're not the true Jews. But we are the true Jews as white, Anglo-Saxon, American Westerners. You heard that? That whole idea lies at the foundation of every white, every Christian, quote-unquote, white supremacy movement, neo-Nazi movement, British Israelite movement, anything that's anti-Semitic. And in modern days, with all of the anti-Semitism that's floating around, it seems to be increasing more and more. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I've noticed that. It seems to be increasing more and more. This is sort of catching a whole another second wind. It's been around for a couple decades, many decades now, actually. 
but it's sort of catching its second wind. It's absolute baloney. Some people will believe the most bizarre things. How do I know it's false? I could say a lot about it, but I don't need to say anything more than what Paul has said. It is this hope to which what? Our 12 tribes. Notice that? 500 years after 10 of them were supposedly lost, how many does Paul know of? 12. It is to this hope that our 12 tribes hope to attain. In Paul's day, there were 12 tribes. None of them were lost. And listen, you're not them. And you're not a descendant of them unless you're a Jew. There were 12 tribes. It was a national hope, a historic hope, a national hope. Third thing I want you to notice is that it was an active hope. Paul says they seek to attain this by serving God day and night. It's not that they can't attain it, but Paul's observing their motivation. The reason they went through all of the sacrifices and all of the ceremonies and the prayers and the 24-hour around-the-clock vigils, the teachings, the burning of the incense, the offering of the animals, all of that, Paul says, is done for the purpose of attaining the hope. How did the Jews expect to attain to that hope through all of their serving God day and night? What were they hoping to get out of serving God day and night through all the sacrifices in the temple? You know what they were expecting? They were expecting that they would be considered among the righteous and that having died, they would be resurrected to enjoy the blessings of the Messianic kingdom. That was their hope. We're going to serve God in the temple. We're going to do the prayers, the incense, all of this in hopes of being counted as righteous and being attaining to righteous so that we might attain to that resurrection so that when the Messiah finally does come, if it's not in our lifetime, He will consider us righteous and He will speak and He will raise us up and we'll get to enter into the blessings of the kingdom. That was their hope. Paul says, I have the same hope that the Jews had. It was a historic hope. It was a national hope. It was an active hope. They were serving. Let me ask you something. Does your hope that you have in Christ and in heaven and the rewards and the resurrection, does it motivate you to service? Does it motivate you to service? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the longest exposition about the resurrection in all of Scripture. And at the end of that chapter, the Apostle Paul says, therefore, concluding everything he said about the resurrection and the rewards to come, he says, therefore, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know what motivates you to service? It ought to be your hope. The confident expectation that there is a God who rewards those who diligently seek Him. And you serve not that you might attain to the hope, but because you already have the hope. That's what motivates us to serve. I do what I do because I know that my labor is not in vain in the Lord. I do what I do because I know that there is a reward that is to come. And that God will, I have every confidence and every expectation, reward those who diligently serve Him. And so with that hope, we serve actively. The hope that Scripture gives us, the hope that the Jews had, the hope that we have, is not a hope that prompts you to sit on your hands and do nothing. My friends, if you can come here for six months, eight months, ten months, a year, two years, three years, and you have no way of using your spiritual gift to serve other members of this body, and there's nothing that you're doing here to contribute to other people and to serve other people, you've got to question where your hope is. You're living for this world or the world to come? If you're living for the world to come, you will be actively involved in giving of yourself to God's people and God's work. That's just a fact. You will do something to contribute into the lives of other people, and your service will be motivated by a hope. So, Paul believed that he had a historic hope, a national hope, and an active hope. It was the exact same hope that the Jews had. Now, here's the million-dollar question. Here's the money question. If Paul had the same hope as the Jews, why are they persecuting him? Don't you want to know that? Why are they persecuting him? Why do they hate him? Why do they reject him? Why do they want to kill him? His hope is the same hope. If you were to take the apostle 
Paul, and you were to take a Pharisee or someone from the temple or any one of the eight Jews from Asia who had had him arrested and launched this whole thing back in Acts chapter 21, if you took one of them, one of the Jews who hated and persecuted Paul, and you took Paul and you asked the Jew, do you believe that God will send the Messiah? The Jew would say, absolutely. Paul, I concur, he would say. And then you would ask the Pharisee or the Jew, do you believe that that Messiah will deal with the sin issue? Yes. Paul would say, yes. Do you believe that the Messiah will establish a kingdom of righteousness? Oh, absolutely. And that he will be the center of it? Oh, absolutely. And rule on the throne of his father David? Oh, absolutely. Paul, do you concur? I concur. Do you believe that there will be a resurrection of all men and that God is able to and does raise the dead? And the Pharisee would say, yes, I do. And you say, Paul, I concur. So what is the issue? Paul says it is because of this hope that I'm persecuted and by Jews nonetheless. Can you imagine that? I would understand being persecuted by Gentiles. I would understand being persecuted by atheists, but my own countrymen who believe the same thing about these things that I do. Where is the difference? You know where the difference lies? Paul actually believed that God did raise one particular individual. And by raising that one particular individual, had demonstrated and declared him to be the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. And Paul did believe that that one individual would sit on the throne of his father David and rule forever and ever. And that that one individual would establish the kingdom of righteousness. Paul actually believed that God vindicated the belief in the resurrection, vindicated a belief in the Messiah, and identified who that Messiah is by raising him from the dead. That they could not stomach. They would not, they could not, and they will not believe that. Now why is that so unbelievable? That takes us to our fourth point. It's not only historical hope, a national hope, an active hope, but fourth, it's a very believable hope. It's a believable hope that we have, isn't it? Look at verse 8. Why does it seem incredible to you people that God would raise the dead? What a great question. Why does it seem incredible to you people that God would raise the dead? I can only imagine that after Paul got done describing this hope and his confident expectation that he had in God, that there would be Jews and Gentiles who would kind of <laughs> snicker. you got to be kidding me. Seriously? You believe in a resurrection? Remember what happened on Acts chapter 17 on Areopagus in front of all the philosophers in Athens? Paul mentioned the resurrection and said some of them mocked. Some said we'll hear you again on this matter, but others just, <laughs> they just chided him. you got to be kidding me. You're a fool. And I think it's to that type of an attitude, it's to the Jews who are present, that Paul says, why is it unbelievable to you? Why is it so inconceivable that God would raise the dead? That's a question I'd like to ask many of my pastoral peers. Do you know I heard a statistic, it's almost 10 years ago now, 30% of pastors who are in ministry today do not believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave in his own body, literally, physically, three days after his crucifixion. 30% of pastors. And that was 10 years ago that I saw that statistic that from that from a particular survey. And we are not moving toward orthodoxy in this country. And I can only assume with confident expectation that that statistic has worsened. 30% of pastors do not believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave in his own body. And I would ask them, why does it seem incredible to you people that God would raise the dead? If there is a God, if he is almighty if He has promised this, if He has the ability to speak and have everything around us come into existence, why is it so unbelievable that He would actually raise a dead individual from the grave? Why is that hard to believe? It's not really hard to believe, is it? It's a very believable hope. A lot of historical evidence, a lot of manuscript evidence, eyewitnesses who say they saw it happen. 
Why should it be incredible to you if God should raise somebody from the dead? And here's what Peter, this is what Paul is saying to the Jews. You agree with me in principle that God can raise the dead, right? Sure we do. I actually believe he did it to one particular person. And they would say, that we can't believe. That we can't accept. But you agree with me in principle. Sure we do. But I have an authenticated, eyewitness, verifiable, historical, literal instance of it actually happening. And they would say, we reject that. And Paul's basically saying, it seems to me pointless to agree with me in principle when you deny the one instance where it actually happened. Why does it seem incredible to you people that God should raise the dead? It's a believable hope. I just finished a book uh, yesterday, actually, and the book was called, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It's a good title for a book, isn't it? I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And the book lays out all of the evidence for the Christian faith. And basically the conclusion of the book, the conclusion of every chapter is, it's either the Christian belief system or it's this belief system. And quite frankly, I don't have enough faith to believe this belief system. So I am stuck because Christianity takes less faith to believe than it does to be an atheist, an evolutionist, an agnostic, or a new ager, or any of the other competing belief systems. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And at the beginning of the book, the author said something that I have contended before you, before today, and that is that the reason people do not accept Christ and Christianity and the Christian faith is not an intellectual problem, friends. It is a moral problem. It's not because the weight of the evidence for Christianity is not convincing. It is not because we don't have intellectual firepower. It's not because it's not historically accurate. It's not because it's been disproved. It's not an intellectual problem at all. It is a moral problem. It is because men love their darkness rather than light. They love their sin rather than righteousness. And they will not believe. And you've probably seen the quotes, and I could give you the quotes from evolutionists and atheists and agnostics who will say, it's either our atheism or Christianity. We have no evidence for the atheism, but we will believe that because believing Christianity puts us under the authority of somebody else. And because they love their immorality, they love their sin, and they hate righteousness, they will choose unbelief rather than believe. It seems insane to us that somebody who's dying as a diabetic would reject insulin, doesn't it? It seems insane to us that somebody who is dying from thirst would reject pure, clean water. And yet, is it not true that you and I reject the thing that we need the most? We did before we became believers, didn't we? We lived a life of rebellion and sin and hatred for God and hatred for His Word and hatred towards righteousness, doing our own thing, rejecting for all of that time the very thing that we needed most, The Jews of Paul's day were doing it. The people of our day who listen to you and reject you, they do the same thing. They reject the thing that they need the most. You can relate to them. Listen, friends, Paul can relate to them too. Because what he's about to show Agrippa is that there was a time when I agreed with the idea of resurrection in principle, but I rejected the fact that God had actually raised that one person. I'm going to find out why Paul did that and how God changed his mind Next time we're in the book of Acts. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is because of your grace and your goodness to us that we are even able to come here to worship you and to acknowledge you as Lord. We thank you for that grace that saved us from sin, which was so binding and blinding. And we thank you, God, that your grace was able to overcome our resistance and our hatred for you. Thank you for your loving kindness and for your Son. And thank you for the hope that you have given to us all tied up in Jesus Christ, the hope of a resurrection, the hope of reward, the hope of eternal glory, being with you for all of eternity. And thank you that you have made that possible and accomplished all of that for us in your Son. It is in his name that we pray.
and thank you this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.